Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and you've seen the title. You know what's coming. It's. <laughs> I, this can't even be an intro. This, I don't even know. This intro like isn't going to be anything. We're, <laughs> we're still in, in shock. <laughs> I the stress high that Charlotte and I have both come off of <laughs> is extreme. It's so extreme. It's very extreme. Um, Yeah. So we are currently in Los Angeles. We are very excited. We got invited to the Mandalorian premiere. It hasn't happened yet. So no Mandalorian spoilers. We're not sure when these interviews are coming out. But on the chance you're listening to this before the Mandalorian premieres, we haven't seen it. There are no spoilers in uh, this episode. But we got an invite to the Mandalorian premiere. And then what, two days later? We got yeah the the email the email the-, <laughs> the email of all emails that of course Caitlin was like on do not disturb or napping <laughs> and I she didn't pick up the phone I think I called you it was like, like a, forty times. forty times it was legitimately row. forty and I was times. like freaking out on my own I'm like all right <laughs> okay <laughs> um anyway yeah. so I just need to say a couple words and say that our goal to talk to Dave Filoni specifically has been our like number one podcast goal of all time. So it is absolutely insane. And I mean, you guys, you guys know we've dressed up as him. (laughs) (laughs) We are big. That's that's the bar we're at. (laughs) Big Wolfpack fans. Like it's, it's guys, it's insane. We have a, the loft cat on the desk right now. He's staring at us that we only really wanted because Dave had the whole series of follow the white loft cat. Like everything about our star Wars fandom, like, yeah. I don't know. It's it's so crazy. I can't even talk about it. So like the fact that this exists is so insane. Yeah. <laughs> so. And yeah, after we responded to the email saying, yes, we'll do the interview. Uh, I don't think we talked about it. No, we didn't. <laughs> we did not talk about it for another week. We legitimately did not mention it once. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, if I speak this, any more than absolutely necessary. Then it's both not going to happen. Yeah. And also if it is happening, then it's like the most pressure, stress thing I've ever experienced what, in my life. What's great is that we did this roundtable interview with some other amazing Star Wars creators. We'll, of course, tag them in the show notes, but they had some amazing questions. I think mm-hmm. everyone really brought it, I have to be honest, to this great interview. Questions. And particularly Dave and John gave exceptional answers that personally I just cannot wait to listen back to and Rick also gave some amazing I'm not just singling out Dave and John I know that this intro seems like it it was amazing to talk to Rick too we are huge fans of his work and his episodes on the Mandalorian and then also we're huge Bo-Katan fans so this is just unreal that we got to talk to Katie Sackhoff and she was glorious beautiful amazing and she had some really funny stories so funny so yeah get get ready for that yeah she had a really funny anecdote about costumes uh, oh yeah i was gonna say luke skywalker yes and (laughs) i have some thoughts about it so (laughs) funny but yeah these were all incredible incredible interviews and of course we're kind of gushing here at the top end of the show about dave and uh and john but it is kind of everything this has been leading to it's like i guess we, we're, we're gonna quit yeah now. it's this over is, this is actually like the, the end last of episode of sky talkers we peaked there's nothing there's nothing left to, to do. do except for george lucas and that's never gonna and that's just not gonna happen. happen so this is it thank you so much for listening yeah. <laughs> anyway so we're really happy that you're joining us on the last episode of sky talkers <laughs> i'm just kidding this is not the end it's not only the, the beginning yeah. we are so excited to yeah. For the honestly, for season three of The Mandalorian. So, thank you so yeah. much for Disney and Lucasfilm for this unbelievable opportunity. Mm-hmm. We couldn't be more grateful. Like, I just, I can't. It's, it's, I know we said like there's not much to say in the intro. Why don't we just roll into the interviews? Let's and, go and get it going. Let's go. So, I think the way that we're going to organize this is we're going to have our roundtable interview with Dave Filoni and John Favreau first, and then our roundtable interview with Rick Famuyiwa right after that. And then finally ending with our roundtable interview with Katie Sackoff, who plays Bo-Katan Kreese. Here's our roundtable interview with Dave Filoni and John Favreau. Oh, here we go. There we go. We're Dave have... can't duck any questions, right? That's not true. 
I'm going to bend like a reed in the wind. Hi. Hi, Dave. Hi, John. Such an honor to speak with you today. One thing we see a lot of in Star Wars is the connections between generations, often in the form of master and apprentice or father and son with Din and Grogu. Why do you think this dynamic is so compelling? I think that, you know, we're all, as we grow up, we're always seeking knowledge. We're always seeking to be understood and to understand the world around us better. I think that, you know, in so many disciplines beyond even a martial art, there is a master and apprentice, you know, in a very real way. I felt fortunate that George was my mentor for many years to even learn how to make Star Wars. So those relationships in your journey through life, you find people that know more than you and that help educate you, that help you on your way. Um, and so I think it's just something that we all understand consciously, unconsciously. Uh, I think in the, when you add a family dynamic to it, like Mando and Grogu, it's even more powerful because we have that relationship in our life uh, from the beginning. And, and, you know, in Star Wars Rebels, we explored how that relationship can be different. It's, it can be an adoptive family. It's not even necessarily, you know, the family that you're born into. And I think in Star that Wars, that seems to be it more seems powerful. It seems to be something that happens quite a bit. And that, the, and that your bloodline isn't necessarily the most... The uh, most defining thing. Right. Yeah, Mando and Grogu are an ad adopted right. to. Mando was an outcast and Grogu was adrift. So I, I think people feel these ways and that's why they want to see characters overcome them. We want to see you know, we are dying for Mando to shut the ship off and go get Grogu in season one. That's the right thing to do. And we want to believe that we're going to do the right thing. We want to be Luke and be brave enough to not rely on the targeted computer and turn it off. We want to believe in ourselves. But it takes everything that these stories tell us leading up to that moment to get these characters over that hump and do these things. But I think that's why we, we respond to it. Uh, we see the characters do things that maybe we're not quite capable of yet, but they give us confidence to take the next step, hopefully, in life. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Hello. The Mandalorian and the Jedi have a long history in the galaxy far, far away, and both are rebuilding in the show's era. Is Grogu a nexus point for those two cultures to perhaps unite under Tar Vizsla's Darksaber? That's a very interesting perspective. You know, he is definitely somebody who has spent time in both worlds. And uh, we know that he started off uh, earlier in the Jedi Temple. We've seen flashbacks to that, uh, that, that speak to that. And then we know that he's been rescued and spent many years with the Mandalorian, went back with, with Luke. Now we've been two years apart from him there training. What's interesting is that as he chooses to return to his friend, the Mandalorian, because he's developed an attachment, it's interesting how that echoes in a way Luke's path when he was, you know, was drawn to the attachment to his friends and how that helped shape the future. So I think that you're pointing out an interesting thing that, that we definitely discuss a great deal of where does he sit and who has come before him and, and what is the relationship of those two civilizations mm -hmm. because the the Mandalorian armor as Dave has taught me uh, uh -oh. you know was developed to counteract all of the natural abilities that the Jedi had and made it a more level playing field so we have a lot to draw from both from the clone wars where they both cooperated and fought and we also have ancient history as as is uh, as we saw in games and an extended universe <laughs> where we know what you're referring to which is that they didn't get along very well in the past so that's a very interesting, valid perspective. Deep question. Hi, hey, gentlemen. This is Sarah and Richard from Skywalking to Neverland. It's great to see you guys again. Yeah, bright suns. Bright you know, suns. <laughs> we know you can't give too many deep cuts on this upcoming season, but can you give us some deep cut Easter eggs to look out for? Well, that's part of the fun of the Easter egg is that it's something that you find, right? Isn't that, uh, isn't that it? I will say that we um, go... We, we really try to do everything we can to find uh, aspects of Star Wars that maybe is unexpected for us to include. And I think that we had a lot of fun at first with drawing from the Star Wars holiday special with the AMB and the, the pulse rifle. And, and also the, the, the Camtono being the Will Rose Hood's um, ice cream maker. I think that the part of that I'm enjoying the most about this process is that 
no matter what part of fandom you're from and no matter what you grew up with and what what era you connect with, we want to make sure that everybody has it's we have something for everybody here and that everybody's welcome to be part of it, even if you're a new fan. You know, even if you're starting off, hopefully I think that was one of the nice things about the original the first season is that these were characters it now if you knew about Star Wars, hopefully there was a lot of rewards for all your all the time spent reading the books or watching the, the movies or the or even the TV shows. Uh, but if you were new, you were just as welcome, arguably more welcome, because it's like we have to invite the next generation in. And it's always been uh, an open door for young people. And, and as a kid, I remember, I still remember I felt 10, 11 years old. It felt like it was for me, but it didn't feel like it was pandering. And so we try to we we want to try to make everybody feel um, that there's something for them here, and we talk about that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And we have directors from different segments of of the of the entertainment world bringing different perspectives. That's animation, independent film, you know. So all of it is meant to really make that it feel like how it feels when you're at celebration, you know. <laughs> You have people from all around the world dressed as different characters, different ages, and everybody's happy and taking pictures together. That's what it feels like for us, and that's what we want to try to capture with the show. Oh, there. Hello. Hello. It Hello. It's insane to be before the mighty Dave Filoni and John Pax. Oh, wow, mighty. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. You're too kind. Oh, i got to put my heart back in my chest. All right. <clears throat> So The Mandalorian has been praised for its ability to tell a story that resonates with audiences on a very deep level. So if art is a form of a mirror, what do you think Din Djarin's character reflects back to us about ourselves and our society? Well, for me, I can only speak personally. What, what What appealed to me about Mando from the beginning was that he's somebody that's very protected. He's inside armor. And while that armor gives him a benefit, it also has him, I thought, incredibly closed off. And I think that we feel that way. We put on our armor a lot these days and, you know, everything feels very combative and the world outside maybe doesn't feel as friendly to us. And so we're armored up. But the significant thing for Mando is that, you know, when he meets Grogu, that all changes. It's small things at first and it becomes simple kindnesses i'm protecting him why because he's worth money but then he ends up protecting him because it is the right thing to do and so i think that you know mando as a character is reflecting this armor but we have to ask ourselves what does that armor really mean what is its value it is his face but when he finally takes the helmet off and and grogu sees his face and he touches his face at the end of season two it it becomes something more it becomes I'm showing you my true face, my true self. I'm allowing myself to be vulnerable. So I think that those are the things that really appeal to me about Mando, and it's allowing us maybe to to take our own helmet off and be more visible to people. I mean, that's that's the way I read it. I don't know if you feel that way, but there you go. Does that help? (laughs) I like you. Hello, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to speak to you again. the the question I've got, uh, and I'm sure Dave, you've you've fielded a lot of these, um, is just uh, you know a lot of the the cinematic influences in Book of Boba Fett. There's definitely a lot of Lone Wolf and Cub in um, the choice Luke gives Grogu. But John, you mentioned in an interview, Paper Moon, yes, and I went mm-hmm. back and rewatched it again, and that movie's so good, and it hit me yeah. right between the eyes. And I'm wondering if you could, if if you both could kind of speak to the conversations about your influences in this in this coming season uh, and stuff that might be surprising, like like Paper Moon. I think some of it just is, you know, the writing process and filmmaking process, but especially the writing process is not really a, a conscious one for me. We do a lot of discussion about, and very much a conscious set of decisions about the broad strokes of where we're going to go and what we're going to do. But when you're actually letting the characters talk to each other and the story's unfolding, if you're if you're doing a good job writing, it doesn't always feel you don't always know what's going to happen next, and and you're really a product. Your subconscious is really a product of all your influences, and Paper Moon was a very strong influence on me, and and and, and a lot of movies of that time period. I'm 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 now in my you know I'm 56, I think yeah I think I'm 56. At my age, you start to lose track of the years, but late 50s. The number and uh, and. You know, I grew up with with the Bad News Bears, and I grew up with you know, P- Paper Moon, 
And and films like that had, you know, there were such interesting relationships of misfits who feel like they're don't belong anywhere, but but these family these family relationships emerge. And then the family relationships are often stronger than than the bloodline relationships, and that's certainly a hallmark of, of Star Wars. You know, families develop around these characters that are spending time together, and bonds are forming. And people are changing who they are based on the experiences that they have together. Look at the arc of Han Solo in the first film, somebody who seems to be very selfish. And I think that that progression from selfishness to living for something and sacrificing for people or somebody something bigger than yourself is very much a part of Star Wars, but but the hero's journey and everything that George learned from Joseph Campbell as well. We're a communal species. We're a, co- a cooperative species. And we are rewarded in, in, the, in the throw of history for when we act in that way, when we think about, when th- we think about things that are more important than just our own individual needs. And so Paper Moon is such a wonderful film because you think it's all about transporting this character, you know, to their living relative after their mother passes away. And then we figure out it's a bit ambiguous, but it's suggested that maybe she, ended, she was actually his daughter. What's interesting because the actors are actually father and daughter. But the idea that when she finally gets delivered to where she belongs, you realize, no, that journey was what reinforced it. And that bond was what was important for both of them. And so the unexpected twist of her leaving behind this cushy life that she could have had and going and, and being a con, a con artist with, uh, with, with Ryan O'Neill, I find an f- unexpected and fulfilling and really satisfying ending. And it's just a beautiful movie. And... and um, and so, as you point out, we, you know, we, we, are, we do find influences in, in cinema stylistically, but also story-wise, because great stories have been told before, and Star Wars is a wonderful way to encapsulate a lot of what came before and, and, and serve it up to a new generation in a, in a, slightly, different, uh, a slightly different context. Hello, gentlemen. This is a question I ask my mythology students, and I'm excited oh to see what the two of you think about this. I want to see if you can talk about the symbolism of Din Djarin initially struggling with wielding the dark lights, the dark saber in the Book of Boba Fett. That's a great. That's a great question. I'm glad you caught that. You know, because on the one hand, you're super excited because I look as the first person who ever wielded the dark oh saber. Oh boy, here we go. As as uh, as pre Vizsla, I could say that it was a. Uh, <laughs> That George, you know, that was a reshoot, by the way, because I was originally. Yeah. That's a public record, right? It was. A, it was originally when a I recorded blade. the voice. It was a vibroblade, mm-hmm. and when George had seen it cut together, uh, I, I found out from Dave because I got called back into the recording booth that no, the vibroblade can't block another lightsaber. It has to be, and he and he created this lore around the dark saber that was stolen from a Jedi temple, and the idea of mm-hmm. Tar Vizsla, somebody who was a Jedi and a Mandalorian, like. And, and I remember, like, I got to go back and record this. I told my wife what, what I was doing. Like, I got to go back, and I just I got to do it again. And she was like, George is right. That's super cool. <laughs> super cool. And she was right. Like, it ended up being this compelling image of what this thing is. But then also I got my clues from Rebels where, uh, you know, when, when, um, Sabine. when Sabine was learning to, to wield it, it was heavy to her. Mm-hmm. And the sense that there is, you know, it's almost like the teachings in, in uh, martial arts of, like, you know, you can't, you can't grab water. You have to. You have to cup your hands, and you, it's not something you could control. You have to flow with it. And the Mandalorian, somebody who probably doesn't have a lot of force abilities and doesn't have any training in it, and who's who's great at every other weapon, this thing is heavy. And you notice when Paz Vizsla picks up the dark saber to use it, it's, it ends up being the thing that that uh, probably loses the battle for him in the Book of Boba Fett. That he's even stronger, but it's even heavier to him. And so that whole Excalibur sword in the stone, mm. if it's your, if you're fated to do this. So there's something larger that's allowing you to wield these things, and they become mythic or symbolic metaphors for whether this is your destiny and, and if you're trying to force something. So, you know, the, 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 the strongest knights in the land could not budge the sword and pull it from the stone. Mm-hmm. And you want to fill in the rest of the, that? No, I, no, it's all very good. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you did wield the sword, so you do now. But yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a matter of, you know, when you're wielding a weapon like that, it is a lot of what's in your mind and in your heart more than your physical prowess. And I think that that is what Kanan was trying to teach Sabine. She's fantastic at, she's a great warrior, 
but she's not balanced in her mind. All of her struggles with her family are preventing her from growing, are preventing her from being balanced in her body. And so, you know, with Amando, he comes into this thing the right way because he doesn't really even want it. But that lack of wanting it is almost like a lack of responsibility. It's saying that, well, why don't you value it? And how can you wield it if you don't really even value it? So there's... It's and also he good hurts metaphor. him. Well, it's also cool in, 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 he is when he hurts right. him. He's yeah. using it. He's like limping around like this yeah. thing. Imagine, because I always thought about that, like a lightsaber, if you don't know how to use it. It's a fumble. That's got to be a, a bigger, roll. that's that's not, yeah, it's not a good, <laughs> It's. I, it always amazed me that they weren't hurting themselves more. With well, I think things. a lot of people did. You just didn't hear about them because <laughs> you hurt yourself. You're not in the story anymore. Right. You fall right. out of but, it. But uh, yeah, but he's, they're all having. I was a, always shocked when Han used Luke's lightsaber to cut open the taunt. I thought that was a big move but he's smart you know but he all he does is make a little yeah that's slit. it one quick that's thing yeah not a not, big deal no, no he's not fighting he doesn't want to use it. that thing. it's like here's the other thing about a lightsaber by any definition of the world they live in it's a really old weapon right so i've talked about this it's not as work. cool to them you were saying no as it's it is not like a samurai is an incredibly well-trained warrior and that seems great and they're highly effective and they're very smart and they have a way of being and then rifles come around. And when you see the Seven Samurai, you see how just di- how difficult it is for these incredibly skilled warriors with a great, you know, with a philosophy and a way of life. But they just get thoughtlessly taken out by someone with a rifle. And so, you know, it's up to Kyuzo to go in and, and take out as many as he can. And it's dangerous because technology is overcoming what skill and discipline has given them. And that becomes a quick and easy path to power. Right, is now we have a, a, a weapon, a blaster that can just, you know, take take down a Jedi. So now we have more people with more blasters. And that's a, like, it is an old, elegant thing to wield a lightsaber. And it takes a tremendous amount of training and discipline to wield it. You just can't pick it up and use it. So all of that then fits in with George's philosophy about the Force itself, which is, yes, we are all part of the Force. We are all connected. We all have it. But it takes a great deal of training and discipline to understand how to wield it. And very few people uh, have that discipline. In our own world, we see that. It's so hard to be disciplined to do things that are good for us, physically, mind, body, spirit. So it's, it's, it's true in the Star Wars universe as well. Great Very talking much. to you. Hopefully, we'll see a celebration. celebration. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah, celebration. <laughs> Cheers. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thanks Thank for the guys. questions. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Great questions. questions. Yeah, always great yeah. questions. Yeah. Always. And here's our roundtable interview with Rick Famuyiwa. Hi, Rick. I'm Caitlin from Sky Talkers. It's so nice to talk to you today. Hey, nice to meet you. What themes or concepts are you most excited to explore when you take on a new episode? I'm always trying to find. Uh, a bit of complication, you know, in in, in the episodes that I do, or or something that feels like I, I can explore uh, a, a larger thematic idea, even though it's within the context of this world that's that's very uh, very different than than the one we live in. And so, I why what I liked about you know my second episode was you know this this bounty hunter was faced with. The decision he made then to to not you know uh, or that he's going to now have to face this this child and what this child means as he now has to deliver it to wherever he needs to deliver it to um, and how that changes his ideas of the world and then that obviously culminates in when he takes off his helmet for for this kid uh, for the same reason but you know that episode was was very much starting to plant the seeds of well what is what are our beliefs what are what do we really stand for and if we only stand for them when they're convenient then are they really truly our beliefs and he got challenged in some ways by the unlikeliest character in in Mayfield Bill Burr um in that episode and so you know i i think this season becomes sort of a continuation of that conversation now that we see not only, you know, is is he as a Mandalorian 
um, has a certain set of beliefs, but we know that there are other Mandalorians like Bo-Katan and, and her crew that have a different sort of idea of what that is. So how those come together and what that means when those ideas that are so very different have to then, you know, sort of uh, intermingle, I, I think that sort of complication has always been really fascinating for me. And this season certainly has a lot of that that we will expand on. And, and so that, I think, is really the kind of stuff that I like to really get in, involved in as a, as a director and, and a filmmaker. All right. This is Sarah with Fangirls Going Rogue. It is so amazing to talk with you. <laughs> hey. And... And I loved when Din took off his helmet for the first time in the Believer episode, which yes. you directed. Mm -hmm. And this new season is going to follow Din's journey because of the repercussions of mm -hmm. those moments. So I'd love for you to talk about why removing that helmet is so crucial to Din's journey in The Mandalorian. I, yeah, uh, I think, you know, Din Djarin as a character was introduced to us as The Mandalorian. We didn't even know his name. We didn't have any idea about who he was or his background, but we knew and he had this this creed and this belief system that was built around being Mandalorian and the helmet and the removal of the helmet was so instrumental and to to that creed. And so I, I think just in terms of, you know, who he is as a character because of this bounty, uh, from the moment he got this bounty and it was revealed what it was, it's it's completely re you know wired his ideas about all of it his, both his identity as a bounty hunter but then he has his identity as a as a mandalorian and so when we were coming to that episode um knowing that with that there would have to come a time when you know those beliefs had uh came up against reality came up against sort of what he needed to do particularly to protect this child and and what would he do in that circumstance if he had to take off this helmet? Um, so I, I think he made that choice. I think he made the right choice. Uh, but obviously, even sometimes when we make the right choices, it, it has repercussions that reverberate uh, beyond. So I think in, in this case, and, and as we begin the season, that's exactly where we are. And, and even though he has this child now in his care in a more permanent way, um, those decisions for those who brought him in, that covert who took him in, are still going to have um, lasting consequences, which Din Djarin has to uh, now find a way to atone for. You know. Hey there, I am Richard from the Sky, walking through Neverland, and it's so great to speak with you. Hey, good to oh. see, talk to you too. <laughs> For the episode that you directed for season three, was there a particular musical direction you gave Joseph Shirley that you can tease us with? Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I think what's, uh, the, first of all, I think Joe's work on this has been phenomenal. And and obviously, you know, he's he's worked with Ludwig and, and, and been a part of that and sort of continues on those themes that, were built, but also just you know because of the the size and scope and scale of of this season, um, and I think they've they've all been been big in their own right. But this this certainly has uh, a very you know cinematic feel to it. So I think what what Joe has done throughout the season um, is is build upon that, and and some of those themes feel very much like the ones that, you know, we we know and love and are familiar with because it's just, just the scale of the show now sort of warranted something like that. Um, so I, I, I do feel like we're we're feeling some of the opera in <laughs> this time, this season around as Joe as Joe starts to uh, to tackle the music. So Thank you. Uh, we're Kerwin and Key from Father Son Galaxy. How are you, Rick? Hey, nice uh, to meet you. How are you guys? Uh, nice to meet you. I just you guys. want to say that I've been a big fan of your work from the very beginning. Um, I enjoy The Wood and Brown Sugar. They're wonderful films. Oh, my good. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Your episodes in The Mandalorian have been praised for their ability to capture the spirit and the essence of the Star Wars universe. What do you think are some of the key elements of your episodes that make them resonate so strongly with the audience? And how do you balance the expectations of diehard fans with the need to appeal to a wider audience? 
Oh, wow. Uh, quite a question. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if I have a, a specific answer because I think for me, I'm not necessarily, when I approach it, I don't approach it like uh, it's Star Wars, you know, I, I, because I think what was, what I loved about this this world and what was so special is that it felt very real and grounded and these characters were real to me and the and the things they were dealing with um, in terms of family in terms of you know just sort of uh, adventure in terms of just the the call to wanted to to make change all all felt so real to me so um, and so that was all put into this world that was. Uh, one conceived by George that was that had all this technology and all these different alien species and it had the force and it had Jedi but ultimately the stories were about these people and so my approach has always been that I'm trying to find this the story that resonates with me as a human being and and then hopefully all the things that make Star Wars what it is you know enhances that and and so that's always been been my my approach is to just say you know let me just tell tell this story and then hopefully it 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 resonates um and then if and then i think for for me um being a fan of of the of the original and and just what george lucas was able to create i've always just tried to to be true to that, uh, and and George sort of created this this story that was about this particular galaxy, but he was living in a world that was very real, and those themes and ideas were coming through um, in the work he was doing. And so I think in the same way, that's what I'm trying to do as I as I approach each episode or, or the work that I'm doing is is it sort of relates to me in a way that's very real, um, and I think that's what makes. Star Wars, Star Wars is at the end of the day, it's still real people, <laughs> even though uh, it's in a it's in a galaxy far away. So that's always been my approach. Hi, I'm Brian with the Full of Sith podcast. Uh, um, all right, Rick, Rick thanks for for talking to us. <laughs> okay. um, I read in an interview that you did that the the different directors always bring something of their own to the table for each episode of the show. And one of the things I've always really been fascinated by are like those cinematic influences. When we talked to John Favreau and, and Dave Filoni earlier today, they talked about like Paper Moon and Seven Samurai. Mm -hmm. And I, kn I know you kind of come from um, a different world of filmmaking, maybe sometimes than they might. Yeah. What stuff are you falling back on? What influences or inspires you as you're sitting down to work on your episodes in, in season three? Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, look, a lot of those influences are, are universal and, and they were the same things that, that influenced me as, as a filmmaker. And certainly, you know, as George was creating Star Wars influenced him. Um, but, you know, so I, I don't necessarily like, and, and I don't always look at specific films or genres as a, as a, as a touch point. But there were, you know, there were a couple of things, especially in past seasons, that I, that I really sort of looked at as I was thinking about my episodes. And in, in season one, episode two, the the child, I was really thinking about the kid, the Charlie Chaplin film, um, because in many ways, uh, you know, I was telling this story with very little dialogue. I don't think, you know, I think the first half of the film or first half of the ep episode, there's not one word of dialogue spoken. And so how do you tell this story um, about this relationship uh, when you don't have words to help you? And so I I went back and looked at a lot of those films, um, particularly that one. And so that became an influence. And then as I was thinking about, you know, writing again, my episode season two, I, I was thinking a lot about uh, Wages of Fear, this, this, uh, this, uh, the film that I'd seen about these men who transport nitroglycerin. <laughs> and so, uh, so there was something about how, you know, because they were in these life or death circumstances, these people who often were from different points of view in those moments were sort of free of, 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 of fear. So they could kind of reveal themselves to each other. And so I think for, 
for Mando and Mayfeld being on a similar kind of adventure, uh, I felt could be a, an interesting way to, to sort of challenge Mando's ideas from someone who probably wouldn't be able to challenge him otherwise. Um, and so for this season, there's there's not necessarily one film or thought that I have in mind, but I, I do think about these themes about what, you know, what defines us, what is our ideology, how does that how does that define us individually, but then what what does it mean to be a part of a larger group? Um, and some of those ideas are going to be revisited here this season. And, I, and I'm really excited about those, those bigger picture ideas around the Mandalorians as we, as we get into season three that are, have been seeded but now are really going to come to, to real fruition. But, um, but I don't necessarily have a specific movie in mind, but I, I think that's really where, where this season is. Hey, uh, Dan Zare from Coffee with Kenobi. What's up? One of my favorite things about the behind the scenes of the first season, besides you wearing the Jays, of course, <laughs> best best dressed director in Star Wars. There you go. Uh, I liked hearing about your uh, the production and you all sitting together in that roundtable. If you could talk about your role in the production of the show and how it's evolved this season, and how does that impact your role as a director? Yeah, um, what's been incredible about this experience uh, is, of course. My, my Star Wars fandom and geekdom has been, you know, uh, thoroughly expressed. But, but really, the, the environment that was created by John, John Favreau and Dave Filoni as this show was coming together really set the tone for um, the experience of, of, of making this story. And, and it was so collaborative and so open and, and he was so open to each director bringing their point of view uh, to to the to the larger storytelling that it really created a, a sort of a, a family dynamic in in terms of how these stories come together, and it didn't feel like you're sort of passing a story from one person to another, but everyone was sort of a, telling telling the same story and sort of understood it. And there was a unique way that that first season came together because we were all sort of new to, te to the technology and sort of had to really know what everyone else was doing that informed the process moving forward. So because it's it's always been that, and John has sort of been the one who does, has done most of the writing, if not all of it, uh, it doesn't have the feel of like, you know, what I guess would be traditional television. So it's always felt very collaborative in that way. So as my role, um, expanded uh, specifically because I was also writing and, and, you know, after the first episode I directed, John asked me to do another episode and, and also write on it. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to, to sort of be a part of his process and that process as he's been writing um, and thinking about the seasons as they're coming together. And, and, and that was the case in season two. You know, he asked me to write a, an episode, and so that meant, you know, hearing and talking to him about his process and what he was bringing together and talking to Dave and, and trying to let it make sure it all lined up as I was writing um, because it wasn't like a traditional writer's room. Um, um, so we all had to be aligned in what we were writing. So it, it helped me sort of see the overall arc of, of storytelling. So that's been... This season has been sort of a natural progression of that, and that now that I'm coming on both as a director but also executive producer, um, being able to have been a part of that process since season one, and now it's sort of expanded in a way that there's trust between the three of us, trust between myself and John. Um, and as the, the show just got bigger and bigger, it, it's something that I think we all having been a part of it from the beginning needed to all get our arms around. So I was, I was, so I, I sort of expanded my role in, in that way, but in some ways it still, it still feels very familiar to what we've been doing since, since season one. Please Thank you guys. Thanks so Thank much. You. Right. Good to see you. Take care, guys. This is our round table interview with Katie Sackoff. Hi Katie. I'm Caitlin Hi. from Sky Talkers. It's so nice to talk to you today. Hi. In this season, how would you describe Din and Bo's relationship? 
Um, you know, um, he's a a bit of a distraction and a nuisance to her, you know? I think that he inserted himself in a plan that she uh, thought was going to go one way and, and, uh, you know, uh, didn't really work out the way that she wanted it to. Um, I, I think that that Bo-Katan truly believes that the only way to rule her people is is by possessing the dark saber, and I think that if 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 I were her, and you know we've all seen her sitting on that throne stewing, I'd be figuring out how to get it back, you know, um, and I think that that may uh, <laughs> it probably permeates most of her thinking at this point. Hello, we're so excited to meet you and see you, and I'm Sarah from Fangirls Going Rogue, Hi. and. Hello. Now, you're known for playing two iconic characters in Bo-Katan and The Mandalorian, and also Starbuck from Battlestar Galactica, and they both kind of set their own rules. So is there something about this type of character that you're drawn to specifically? <laughs> um, listen, I, I, I am such a rule follower in my own life, so <laughs> it's, it's very nice to live vicariously through these women. Um, but no, I, I love complicated women. I, I find them to be uh, the most relatable. Um, you know, life isn't black and white. And I and I think that I, I find them to be the most interesting to sort of um, live in for a while, for sure. Charlotte from Sky Talkers. Hey there, I am Richard from Skywalking Through Neverland. Hello. Great to talk with you, and, and you look fantastic today, by the way. Thank you. And speaking of looking fantastic, can you talk about Bo-Katan's armor? How the Mandalorians like to personalize their armor. Did you personalize Bo-Katan's armor in any way? So uh, you're right. Armor is incredibly personalized in the Mandalorians, and I think that's one of the things. As like just a, a fan of Star Wars and like a Katie on set, Walking around and looking at all of the different armor this year was absolutely so much fun. Um, you know, our costume department is uh, just unmatched. They're so good at what they do. And and um, um, you see how I'm avoiding the question that you asked me, right? Um, yes, I <laughs> You know, um, we'll see. Curly. Okay. Got it. Thank you. So you portrayed the character Bo-Katan in both the animated and live-action series. How did you approach playing this character in these different formats, and what were some of the challenges and opportunities of bringing Bo-Katan to life in a live-action setting? Such a good question. Okay, so so voice acting for for Bo-Katan is a completely different medium. When I'm in the the voice recording booth, I can do whatever I want with my body. I'm not restricted. There is a level of freedom that comes from uh, just focusing on what your voice is doing and not having to think about what your hands are doing at the same time. And so then once I started playing Bo-Katan in live action, all of a sudden I had to figure out how she moved, how she walked, how she carried herself. What did her hands do? And, and what I realized from watching the animation and then putting on her armor and having played the voice for so long, what I realized is that Bo is incredibly stoic and she is purposeful with her movements. When she moves and when she speaks, it's very intentional. And so I had to calm myself when I played her and make sure that I didn't move as much as I do in the booth. So when I put the helmet on and play Bo-Katan, it is the closest thing. I love it because all of a sudden my face can do whatever it wants to. And I don't have to worry about that I look like Katie, who's like excited that she's in Star Wars. Hey, Brian with Full of Sith. Um, I want to ask, you've talked a lot, even just in this interview, about being a big Star Wars fan. And I kind of wanted to go back and see if you could walk us through the experience in season two of getting to like be on set with Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker. <laughs> I wish I was on set with Mark Hamill. Um, so um, Dave Filoni, as good of friends as we are, and as much as I trust him, and as much as I say that he is the kindest, most sincere, most authentic, most amazing man in the entire world, lied to my face and told me it was Plo Koon. And I believed him because it was just an actor with dots on his face. And I believed him. I was like, 
Dave Filoni would never lie to me. Come on, we've been friends for over 10 years now. I trust this man with like everything, especially Star Wars. Lied to my face. So I was thinking it was Plo Koon until I literally saw the episode with you all. And I saw the green lightsaber and I saw the cloak and I went, stop it. Stop it. And I saw the X-Wing. I saw all of the things that you guys saw and was like, and texting Dave all at the same time. And all I text him was, Plo Koon? Question, exclamation, question, exclamation, question, exclamation. And then an angry face. He lied to me. Oh, that was really fun to listen to. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Dan Zare from Coffee with Kenobi. Hello. Hello there. So uh, speaking of Dave Filoni, what have you learned about uh, as an actor and a storyteller from spending time with both Dave Filoni and Jan John Favreau throughout this whole process? Yeah. So, I mean, talk about commitment to your work with Dave. I mean, he literally lives this. He he knows this world better than anybody, probably better than George at this point. Um, you know, and 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 it's what he does with an absolute passion that drives him. And and I love talking to him about it all the time. It, it's just a joy. Um, and you know, from from John, I mean. It, John is a master. I've, I've, I've wanted to work with John since I got into this business. He was like on my list of people I wanted to work with. Um, he's just such a good storyteller. And he, he really has the ability to lead you on a journey and see the big picture, but focus on the small details. And, and he's just so good at what he does. Do you think that Bo-Katan's sister Satine's life choices and her tragic death really weigh on Bo-Katan and maybe inform your performance in any way? Absolutely. You know, I think that when, I think that one of the things that I think people don't realize is how young she was in Clone Wars because we never really talked about it. Um, and she was young and she was impressionable and, and she believed because she was she was literally raised to be the warrior in the family. Her sister was was in government. She was the warrior. That was her place. And, and to take that away from the Mandalorian people, she did what she thought was right and she aligned herself with people that she trusted and by the time she realized the error of her ways, it was too late and it cost her sister her life. Um, I think that that affects everything that she does. Every move she makes, everything she's doing now is to try and make up for that one moment. Do you see bo as a character who is after redemption? Mm. I think that Bo has too big of an ego to realize that that should be what she's doing. Um, and, and um, you know, maybe the, the having lost everything um, and where we find her in the beginning of the season could put, put her on that journey potentially. You've been to so many conventions meeting so many fans. What memories do you have of meeting someone who either brought a tear to your eye or made you laugh really hard? Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so many, you know, I've, I've, I've been doing this for a long time now. And one of the things that I always found to be incredibly important is going to conventions. Um, it is part of the sci-fi world. It is part of the fan base. And I think that, um, uh, to, to deny that is, um, a disservice to the genre um, and I, I love going and talking to the fans and listening to what they liked about the thing that I did or talking about some other project that we both think is really fun. Um, you know, it's just, it's something that's really important to me. And, and, um, there's been moments that I've laughed hysterically. You know, I, I was just at a convention and I told the story of basically how I, you know, peed on myself in costume. It was fantastic. You know, my suit is a one piece and I have to go to the restroom like normal person. And um, we couldn't get the whole thing off fast enough. And so they created a zipper for me to try out and it it didn't work. Um, 
And um, so we scrapped that idea and then just got more proficient at taking the suit off. So I've, I, you know, I try to make conventions fun and I try to give away little, little tidbits of, you know, uh, information that people won't get anywhere else because it's, you know, hysterical. Bo-Katan is a character with a rich and complex backstory. What drew you to this character and how did you prepare for the role? So, I, you know, originally when I got offered the role of Bo, um, it, was, it was a very, very quick conversation with uh, Dave and, and sort of my team. And it was just like, do you want to play a female Mandalorian warrior in an animated series? And I was like, of course I do. Um, and, and jumped at the opportunity. I really didn't give it a second thought because I, I was brought up on Star Wars. To be in Star Wars was like the pinnacle thing, you know, that you go after. And um, so it was almost working backwards in the sense that, you know, once I, I had the opportunity to play her in live action, that's when that work started coming in. And I, I started questioning all the things uh, that she'd been through and what that looked like. And, and you know, I started doing the work of, of, of an on-screen actor, which is different than, in my opinion, than the work of a, a voice actor. You learn the story just as well, but at the end of the day, it's my voice conveying someone else's words and story. It was what Dave wanted it to sound like. Um, and then once we went into animation and I took a little bit more ownership over the character, I started really working and trying to understand who she was and where she came from and the, the decisions that she'd made in her life that sort of put her on the trajectory of where we found her in Mandalorian. I imagine it hits you differently as a Star Wars fan, seeing your voice come out of an animated character, you know, like that that I'm in Star Wars giddiness versus seeing yourself in person in Star Wars. Like, which which did hit harder for you? Or what was that experience like, you know, processing the fact that you got to be in Star Wars? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that, that the... The idea of playing a Star Wars character in in any medium was not lost on me from the very beginning. You know, I mean, I, I took the role because I I never dreamed that that Bo would be in live action. Um, and you know, but seeing yourself in Star Wars next to a Jedi, like it's there's. It's just crazy. I mean, like the little girl in me who who watched, you know, um, the original trilogy with my dad when I was like six years old, like would have just died. You know what I mean? Like she would have just it, it's just such a cool thing. And um, I don't you know, it'd be hard pressed for anything to compare. So you talked a little bit earlier about your differences uh, between yourself as a person and, of course, Bo-Katan and then Starbuck. But I also am a huge Battlestar Galactica fan, so I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you <laughs> some key similarities and differences for you between Bo-Katan, Starbuck, and also I loved you as Sarah Corvus in The Bionic Woman, too. Oh, thank you. I loved that show. Too short-lived. Yeah. Um, you know, there is a there is a youthful angst to, to Starbuck that is exhausting. Um you know, she is really trying to figure out who she is and where she fits in the world and what her purpose is. And she's fighting back against authority. And, you know, um, probably a little like Bo-Katan when we first meet her um, in Clone Wars. Um, but I think that <laughs> because of the, the tragic ending of Starbuck, we never got to see her um, grow into a, 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 a woman, really, you know. Um, and... And I think that Bo has all of these life experiences and all of these tragedies and all of these burdens and, and the weight of, of the, you know, self-imposed, you know, desire to lead. I think all of that has created this character that is um, incredibly complicated and heavy and... Um, tragic you know um and then you know sarah corvus was just nuts sarah was just nuts <laughs> she was just crazy <laughs> and that was fun like i loved playing her i absolutely loved playing her that was 
that was uh, um, my first sort of like like uh, foray into superhero status a little bit in the sense that she had she had superhuman strength, which was really fun to play. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for your questions. Have a good one. Enjoy the show. Can't wait. (laughs) Okay. So those were our roundtables. And still, again, very overwhelmed. (laughs) I'll say again, the adrenaline high that we're both coming off of. I'm crashing a little bit. Pretty extreme. (laughs) We Thank God we did Dave and John's interview first. There had to be that way. Yeah, they're always on the same day, or they're usually on the same day when we do this. These sets of roundtables, and um, the last couple times, it feels like the person we were kind of most stressed and excited about was last in the day. Uh, I remember um, Diego Luna's was last yeah. in the day, but Dave and John were first. So there was about a two-hour break between Dave and John before we got to interview Rick and Katie, and we were just like. Of course, we got celebratory drinks. I mean, yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> if you know anything about us, that is that's the that's the move. Yeah, <laughs> but it was, I, yeah, I kind of can't believe it, and I feel like we haven't expressed our gratitude well enough that we even get these opportunities because all of you choose to listen and support our show. And uh, Charlotte, I think Charlotte said it, but this literally is kind of everything that. <laughs> We've been leading it was to the top of our 2023 goals list. It's mm-hmm. actually the top of our list like every year. So, well, you know, <laughs> he gets invited to dinner pretty much every, every year. year. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you've listened to our show, you know that our fandom kind of starts with the Clone Wars specifically. And a big part of that is, of course, Dave Filoni. So, uh, getting to bring things, you know, full circle here has just been really special, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is kind of an understatement but we hope you guys enjoy these roundtables and we're excited for our next opportunity that i know is coming to <laughs> interview dave <laughs> okay you're really putting that out okay. in the universe <laughs> we, we so we we only got to ask one question right and we had it's we, all, by the way that's totally okay because as you've heard the answers to everyone's questions oh yeah were amazing and they were so generous with exactly. their answers yeah they were so great but uh when we were, we prepared a whole list of questions, right? And one like of them, ten. one of them specifically, we were like, it's going to go to Dave. So the question is written, Dave, Dave da, 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 da. and whenever we would practice it, it was like, Dave. <laughs> like, it was, we are like, this Dave, is insane. Dave, Dave, how do we say Dave, it? Dave, 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 Dave. Yes. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> thank you all for listening. Also, just one note. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. But you know, last year when Caitlin and I were able to have do a roundtable interview with Hayden Christensen, I mean, it's really special that like usually when Caitlin and I do these interviews, like we're in two separate locations. Mm-hmm. So it's super cool that we're able to do this together. Yeah. We got new mics too. I don't know. I hope they're sounding okay. And I feel like it's just great that we were in the same place because mm-hmm. it, number one, we wouldn't have had the celebratory drinks after. <laughs> number two, it's just like, I don't know. We just were, full circle. It's for, yeah, it's just really, yeah. really, really great. So it is. Yeah, and yeah, we couldn't be more grateful. And don't want to draw this out any more than necessary. But if you've listened to the show, you know how special this is for us. And uh, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. We truly, truly appreciate it. So thank you so much. Uh, if you want to talk more Star Wars with us again, Mandalorian season three, we're now less than 48 hours away at the time of recording this. Uh, so we're going to be talking about it. So please follow us on Twitter at SkyTalkersPod or our personal handles. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher and Charlotte's is at Clarity. We also have our website, SkyTalkers.com, our TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, all good places to find us. And if you haven't left us a review yet on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we would love it if you took a couple seconds to go and do that. And if you're interested in other ways to support our show, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our different reward tiers there. So I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, Jonah, Becky, Z, Allie, Simon, Sophia, Jessica, Allie, Natalie, Aldersi, Tim, Benjamin, Paul, Tadashi, Emily, Ian, Nina, Megan, Kara, Alexa, and Molly. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes, thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Thank you.